Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now we're continuing on um, in the book of Genesis, and we've come up to Genesis 17. Now last week, if you were with us, we saw that human effort... No human effort can ever bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. That despite human faithlessness, we saw last week, in this chapter we will be reminded that as he speaks to Abram, that God is more than able to bring about the fulfillment of his promises, even when it is humanly impossible. So human effort can never accomplish God's promises. You cannot speed it up. You cannot somehow make it happen. But even when it seems humanly possible, today we will see that God is able to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. Now in this chapter, God is going to reiterate his promises to Abram. You know, God has progressively revealed more things about the promises to Abram. And in this chapter, you get the most detail about these promises, most clarity about these promises. In fact, God will tell Abram everything that Abram will need to know regarding these promises in this chapter. And all of this happens in the context of God reaffirming or renewing the covenant that he has with Abram. I've titled this morning's sermon as the God's covenant with Abram reaffirmed. You know, and when you think of covenant too, you should remember that in Genesis 15, You know, God promised Abram that he would have his own biological son. He would have numerous descendants. And that he would inherit the land of Canaan. And then he made this covenant with Abram. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, God walked through the cut pieces of the animals on this bloodied path where he invoked a curse on himself saying, if the obligations of the covenant were broken in any sense, whether on the part of God or on the part of Abram or his descendants, then God is saying, may the curse of death fall on me. But because only God walked through the bloodied path between the animals, and Abram did not walk on that bloodied path, he was fast asleep. God was saying, no matter what, the onus of fulfilling the promises that I have made to Abram solely lies with me. God alone promised that he was going to bring about the fulfillment of the promises in this covenant that he made with Abram. And so in this sense, it was a unilateral covenant. But then last week we saw, even though God promised he is going to do this, as the years passed and the promise of the offspring or the seed or the promise of this heir or child had not come to pass, and Sarai, Abram's wife, was still barren, 
they became impatient in, in waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So what did they do? They took things into their own hands. And then they came up with a plan to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. And then we saw that a son was born, Ishmael, not from Abram and his wife Sarai, but from Abram and Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And this was part of the plan that they conjured up. And this, we saw, was a sinful thing to do, a faithless thing to do. And after Ishmael was born, we saw that there was a conflict between Hagar and Sarai. And then Hagar is treated so harshly that she ran away from there to go back to Egypt. But then God came to her, cared for her, and brought her back to the house of Abram. And Abram received Hagar back and Ishmael as his son. So there is now this divided home, so to speak, with Sarah on the one side and Hagar on the other side with her son. Two wives in the same family, in the, under the same roof. And it's in this context now, God will appear to Abram. And he renews his covenant with Abram and gives him great details about his promises. So God's promise, God's covenant with Abram reaffirmed. I'm going to look at it under two headings. God's declaration, that's in verses 1 through 3, and God's promises in verses 4 through 8. So God's declaration, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now, if you remember from last week, Abram was 86 years old when he had Ishmael. So now he's 99 years old. So from chapter 16, moving on to chapter 17, 13 years have lapsed since the birth of Ishmael. 13 years of tension between Sarai and Hagar as they lived under the same roof. And I want you to think about this. When Hagar, after she fled and she returned back to Abram's house, and she told Abram how God had taken care of her and about what God had told her, for starters, you know, she told him that, hey, I'm going to have a son. This is what God told me. And his name is going to be Ishmael. And we saw that, you know, it's Abram who finally names this child as Ishmael. And then she would have told him also that this son would be numerous. That there would be numerous descendants coming from this son. So at this point, even though Abram knows that he sinned, Abram, you know, is now short-sighted. And he's thinking, well, I'm old. Sarah is barren, well past the age. Ishmael is the promised son. 
In fact, Genesis 17, 18, we'll look at that in the coming weeks, will make that abundantly clear when Abram suggests to God, hey, what about Ishmael? Can't he be the heir? Shouldn't he be the heir? But I'm sure in the midst of all this, Abram would also have questions and some confusion as well. Because if you remember, God told Hagar that Ishmael would be, an aggress- would be aggressive, that he would be hostile to others. So then Abram must be thinking, well, what about being a blessing to others? Wasn't that what my son was meant to be? What about all that spiritual blessing to others and the other nations? And I'm sure Ishmael's character as he's growing up and now a teenager would, would become more evident of how hostile and aggressive a person this, he is. In fact, we get a glimpse of his character in Genesis 21.9 where he ridicules Sarai and when she has her own child, Isaac. And so with the constant strife between Sarai and Hagar in the home, and and seeing uh, Ishmael like this, I'm sure he would still have some questions. I mean, did I totally mess things up? Have the terms of the promises that God has given changed? Is God's covenant with me still binding? Is it still in effect? And why has God been so silent for 13 years? I mean, 13 long years, there's nothing from God. You know, think of 2009. Much has happened in these 13 years, right? That's how long it's been since he's heard from God. Any number of these questions would have been plaguing Abram's mind. And, and if we were to just think, oh, but why did God take 13 years to speak to Abram again? We could say on the one hand, God took so many years because it was some form of discipline for Abram's sin and faithlessness, for his disobedience to God. And so God was silent to him for so many years. And oftentimes in the Bible, as we go through, especially in the Old Testament, that's when God is silent as a form of discipline. But on the other hand, for those of us who know the full story that Ishmael is actually not the promised son, God actually had another reason why there was a delay of these 13 years in fulfilling the promise of that son, that uh, air that he was talking about. And Romans 4, 19 um, sort of helps us understand, and it says this, he, that is Abram, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Why? Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So here's the thing. Aside from the fact that his wife Sarah was barren, and now she's what? About 89 years old. 
And she's beyond that age of childbearing. The reason why God delayed this promise of a son and it took 13 more years is so that Abram would become so old that it would be humanly impossible even for Abram to have a child. His body was as good as dead when he was 99. I mean, can you think of a 99-year-old man having a baby? I mean, it's humanly impossible. But God wanted to wait all this while so that Abram would realize that it was God alone who will fulfill the promise. And God is able to fulfill this promise even when it seems humanly impossible. You know, I was thinking of some of the promises of God and, uh, you know, promises that we as Christians wait on. And one promise that we can struggle with is the promise found in Philippians 1.6, where it says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can think, Lord, why does it have to take so long? I mean, why can't I just be perfect now? Why can't I just be without sin and and just know God perfectly and, and be all that I need to be? Well, part of the reason God doesn't do things instantaneously is so that we would realize our sinfulness that we would realize our inability, that we would realize our weakness and our impatience and and the list can go on. And as we're reminded of this and then we think about who God is, it makes us realize even more how great God is, how holy He is, how patient He is how merciful and gracious He is. And, and in this way, we know God in a way that we would not understand Him otherwise. You know, there's even a real sense in which when we get to heaven, we will know God in a way that angels do not. At least a sense in which. See, because the angels never sin. So the angels don't know what it means for God to be patient and gracious and be loving towards sinful creatures. But in this sense, in a very real sense, we will know God as the patient and gracious and loving God even more than how angels understand it. So part of the reason why the Lord delays his promises for his children is that so that we would see our inability and our weaknesses. And that's not a bad thing because that will cause us then to see how great he is and how holy he is 
and how able he is. And it will cause us to rely on him and trust in him alone. And that's always a good thing. Because it's when we trust in ourselves, things go lead to disaster. So that's what we see here in Abram's case. There's been a 13-year delay. And the Lord wanted to make him know his inability to bring about God's promises. And consequently know the greatness of God to build him up in his faith and his reliance on God. So verse 1 again. And really, on top of that, even to reassure Abram, hey, my covenant with you still stands, Abram. Even though you are unable, even though you have sinned, even though you have been disobedient, my covenant still stands with you. So verse 1 again. So the Lord appeared to Abram, and this is after 13 years, when he was 99 years old, and said to him, I am God Almighty. See, now the Lord reveals himself with a new name to Abram. As El Shaddai, God Almighty. If you remember from a few chapters ago, from Melchizedek, Abram learned that the Lord was El Elyon, God Most High, meaning that God is the most preeminent one, that he is the only God, that there is no one like him. Then from Hagar that we saw last week, Abram learned that the Lord is El Roy, the God who sees and the God who cares. And now the Lord is making himself known as El Shaddai, God Almighty. The God who's full of might that there is nothing he cannot do. That there is no other being more powerful than him. That he is more than able to fulfill his promises even when it seems humanly impossible. And you know, this name, El Shaddai, God Almighty, this is a name that the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, this is how they knew him the most, as El Shaddai, God Almighty. In fact, God himself will say this to Moses years later in Exodus 6.3. This is what God says to Moses. I appear to Abram, to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So they didn't understand the significance of Yahweh, but they really got what it meant that God is Almighty, that He is El Shaddai. And that's what the patriarchs in the book of Genesis really held on to and knew Him as. And so by revealing himself as El Shaddai, the Lord is telling Abram, I am able to bring about the impossible. I am the almighty God who is able to powerfully fulfill every promise I have given you. Now, but isn't it interesting? The Lord had to bring Abram to that point where he would realize that he was powerless. That he cannot do anything to make this happen. 
And at that point, God reveals himself as the all-powerful, almighty God. And Abram would really know God this way. And it would bolster his faith and his reliance on God. And it's the same for us as believers. You know, perhaps some of you are thinking, oh, it's so hard to live this Christian life. You know, I don't know if I can change in this area of my life. I don't know if I can continue to maintain my Christian testimony at my school or at my workplace. I don't know if I can be the kind of man or woman that God expects me to be. You know, the kind of spouse or the kind of parent or the kind of neighbor that God expects me to be. Because it's so hard. Well, if you're thinking this way, brother, sister... Let me remind you, even as I remind myself, though you are weak, though I am weak, the Lord is more than able. He will sustain you. He will keep you to the end. He's the one who has promised that he will finish that work in you. He is mighty to bring about all his promises. So look to him, not yourself. Trust in Him and rely on Him and be faithful to Him. So the Lord reveals Himself as God Almighty and then God gives Abram two commands or two obligations. Look at the last part of verse 1. He says, walk before me. Now to walk before God It means to to live before God, to live with a consciousness that you are living before God. It's what the, the, the reformers often use the term quorum deo, where you're you have this thinking that I'm always living in the presence of God. That every part of Abram's life would be, was to be lived as though he was living before the Almighty God. You know, whether he was alone in his tent or in the desert somewhere or with people outside, no matter where he was, he was to live with a consciousness that he was living before the Almighty God. Now this also meant, in essence, that Abram would have to place his whole life under God, under his guidance, under his protection, under his ways. So there's no part of his life where, oh, this is my life, and the rest of it is under God and before God, but some of it, uh, you know, that's just me. No, it, it meant that he would have to place his whole life under God and under his guidance and protection and his ways. So God says, walk before me and blameless. Be blameless. What's blameless? Now the idea of being blameless is not the idea of being sinless. In fact, we saw the same word used of Noah and we looked into it a little bit. Even in the life of Abram, just like in the life of Noah, Abram would never live a sinless life. In fact, even in a few chapters, he will mess up again. So what what does it mean then to be blameless? 
Well, to be blameless is the idea of being made whole, of being whole, of living a life of integrity. That there's no, there's no fault, there's a wholeness. That this side and this side, what's on the inside and what's on the outside, they, they match up. So it's the idea of, of a wholehearted devotion to God and, and not being a hypocrite. So that you're devoted to God from the inside, from the heart, and that's what you see on the outside. And when Abram lives this way, and all the world is seeing him, around him is seeing him, they, everyone's going to get a picture of, here's a person who lives in right relationship with God. This is what that person looks like. Not a perfect person. But everyone around would get a sense of, this is what a person who is in right relationship with God would look like. Now it says, walk before me and be blameless, Abram. Why? Verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now this verse could be translated better as that, that I may give or set my covenant instead of make my covenant. Maybe better to say, can be translated as I may give or set my covenant between you and me. Now, to try and explain this, let me just pan out a little bit. Genesis 15, we saw God already made that covenant. He already cut that covenant. He initiated that covenant with Abram, where God alone said, I'm obligated to fulfill the promises of this covenant. Now, what God is doing is God is reaffirming that same covenant, that same covenant relationship with Abram saying, hey, Abram, because my covenant still stands. Because you're in covenant relationship with me, you have an obligation now. You have an obligation to, to live out your part. That's to walk before me and be blameless. Or in other words, you have an obligation to live in a manner that shows that you are in this covenant relationship with me. And, and live this way, why? So that I might give you this covenant in the sense of I might set in motion, as one commentator said, set in motion the promises of this covenant. That as you live this way, that you might experience the blessing of living in this covenant relationship. Because if you don't, there's going to be a delay in this blessing. And for Abram particularly, it was the blessing of having many descendants through the promised son. And what was Abram's response? Verse 3, it says, then Abram fell on his face. See, Abram recognizes his powerlessness, his frailty. And he recognizes who this God is, that he is indeed the Almighty One. He recognizes that he has totally messed things up. And yet to think that, hey, this covenant with me still stands. God is so gracious and God is still so good to me. He's overcome with thankfulness and gratitude. And so this causes him to bow down before God with a thankful heart, with a humble heart. And he's saying, I, I, I'm fully surrendered to you, Lord. And I will listen to you and walk according to whatever way you want me to walk. 
Now, I want, I want to point out one thing here. See, Abram is not entering into this covenant relationship with God only if he, you know, lives up to the standard that God is telling him to live out. That's not what's happening here. Right? Because Abram was declared righteous because he had faith in God. We saw that in Genesis 15. God has already entered into a covenant relationship with him. We saw that in Genesis 15 again. So this is not now somehow saying, hey, Abram, you need to do some works. Abram, you need to clean up your act to merit having this covenant relationship with me. That is not what is happening here at all. No, this is God simply telling Abram, live in a way that demonstrate that you are in relationship with me so that you can experience the blessing of this relationship. This is so important to understand this distinction. Not just purely from the point of Abram, because it has the same implications for us today living the Christian life. See, some people think that in order to follow Jesus and be a Christian and be in covenant relationship with him, you know, people think, oh, you need to live a certain way and you need to live a squeaky clean life and you need to be religious and do this or do that. And unless you do all those things, you cannot be a Christian is what some people falsely think. Let me tell you, that is not what the Bible says at all. That is not how you become a Christian. No, you come just as you are with all your baggage and all your weaknesses and you come to Jesus and you put your trust in him and you rely on him and there you have that relationship with him. But here's the thing. Once you are in relationship with Jesus, you need to live like it. So it's not live like this to be in relationship with him. No, that comes as you come to Jesus and just simply rely on him and what he has done. But once you're in relationship to him, you need to live like this, where your whole life is lived in submission to him. It's not that you have your spiritual life or your churchy life and, and then you have your work life and you have your family life and whatever other life. It's not all divided like this. No, your whole life, it's one life, it's your life. That whole life is lived in submission to the Lord Jesus. And in this way, you follow him. And as you're following him, uh, you are then turning more and more away from yourself and away from sin. See, again, this is not sinlessness. This is not saying that you will be perfect on this earth. But it does mean that if you say you are actually following Jesus, you're moving in this direction, you have a relationship with him then it also means that you are moving away from sin. You are turning away from sin, turning away from relying on yourself and you're relying on him and moving towards him. Or to use the, the imagery here, which is where you are submitting your whole life to him. 
So it's not, okay, all of this is lived under Jesus, but there's all these things that I will cling on to. No, Jesus doesn't come under this. No, all this life is submitted to him, and there's a progression, a movement in this direction, even though you will never do this perfectly. This is the evidence that a person has truly trusted in Jesus and is following a Jesus, following Jesus. This is the evidence that a person is in right relationship with God. It is not your emotions. It's not how you feel at this moment. It's not even some grand experience that you may have had. The evidence that you are in right relationship with Jesus is that you are following him with your whole life submitted to him and you're moving in that direction, which means you're moving away from sin and yourself. And as you live this way, following Jesus and turning away from sin, you will experience the blessing of living in that right relationship with Jesus. So the Lord has revealed himself as El Shaddai, Almighty, telling Abram, you know, live in a manner that reflects that you are in covenant relationship with me so that you may experience the blessing of being in this relationship. And this was God's declaration to Abram. Now let's just quickly look at God's promises, verses 4 through 8. And here God will reiterate the promises made to Abram, and then he expands on them. Last part of verse 3 and then verse 4. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, God is reassuring Abram. Abram, my covenant is still with you. It is still in effect. Yes, you've done everything in your power to to try and fulfill these promises. In fact, you've tried to thwart my plans and promises as a result. But let me tell you, Abram, my covenant with you hasn't become null and void. It still stands, and don't you doubt that. My covenant is with you. And because my covenant is with you, God says to Abram, you will be father of a multitude of nations. See, previously God had had said, Abram, you would become a great nation. He said he would be a blessing to many. He said your descendants would be innumerable. But now God adds something else right now, gives more clarity. It's not just that you're going to have a great nation and multiple descendants. But you, Abram, are going to be the father of a multitude of nations, plural. Not just one great nation, of nations. And to really cement this this promise, to, to mark out this promise, God then changes Abram's name. Look at verse 5. It says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. See, the name Abram, it really means a great father or an exalted father. But Abraham, it means father of nations, or at least it sounds very much like it. 
Anyone who listened to that word in Hebrew would be like, oh, father nations, father of nations. So God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And I want you to think about this. All through his life, from the time Abram was born, that was what his name was, Abram. And as Abram, over the span of his life, came in contact with people and he introduced himself as Abram, great father, you know, that name would have been a painful reminder that he is not a father. And until he was 76 years old and he had Ishmael, even though it was through sin, at least he now had a child. But he's still no great father. But now that he's 99 years old, God changes his name to Abraham, meaning father of nations. And so now when people would call him Abraham, it would be a daily reminder. In fact, a reminder multiple times in a day when people call him Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. It would be a reminder to himself that God will fulfill his promises regarding the nations. I will be father of the nations. What a blessed reminder it was to Abram. I mean, people may have thought, oh, oh, this guy's crazy. Uh, I mean, as though he wasn't crazy enough before to have a name called great father, now father of many nations. But this name change only strengthened Abraham. You say, why? Because he knew that his God was El Shaddai the almighty God who makes the impossible possible. His very identity, his very name change, it was changed to cement the fact that God's promises would be realized through him. And notice the last part of verse 5. I love this. God says, your name shall be called Abraham. Why? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram's 99 years old. There's no multitude of nations from Abram at this point. His body is as good as dead. And yet God says to Abram as though it has already happened. I have made you father of many nations. Like it's as good as done. God is saying, you can count on it. You can count on this promise. Again, why? Because he is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. There is nothing can, that can stop him from bringing about his promises. The one who gave the promises is able to keep his promises because he is the powerful, almighty God. And isn't this a comforting truth for all believers as well? See, because it's one thing for God to be the ruler of the entire universe. And for him to be righteous and for him to be good and gracious and caring and loving and merciful. But if he is not all-powerful and almighty, then regardless of his best intentions, regardless of what he promises 
there would be things that would be able to thwart his plans and promises because if he was almighty, it would never come to pass. So it's a wonderful truth to know that this God is also almighty and therefore he is fully capable and powerful enough to bring to pass every promise that he has made. Now verse 6 says, the promises keep adding on, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Fruitful, and before we saw, you know, I will multiply you. So this language of being fruitful and multiplying, it's hinting at the fact that this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, it is through this covenant that the original creation blessing, remember? God said to Adam and Eve, go forth, be fruitful and multiply. That original blessing in the garden would now be mediated now through the Abrahamic covenant. And then God says, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. Again, a new dimension to the promises. There were some hints along the way about this, uh, you know, seed king thing happening. Now God makes it very explicit. That from Abram's line will come a royal line. It's not just nations, but kings will come from him. Abram will become the father of the Ishmaelites and the Edomites and the Midianites and the Israelites and and, and all, all of these kings as well. And specifically through the Israelites, you know, God promised that a king would come and that we see when he speaks to uh, Judah, that from his line, the scepter will not depart. And then as we trace that line down through Israel and through Judah, we, we come to this man named David, a king of Israel after God's own heart. And then God comes to him and makes another covenant with King David. And he says, through your line, which has come through, Dave, which has come through Abram, will come an eternal king who will come to establish his eternal kingdom. And then as you... Turn the pages of scripture again, just getting right at the start of the New Testament, the book of Matthew and the very first chapter, very first verse. And it talks about Jesus Christ as the son of Abram, the son of David. You see, Jesus is the eternal king, the almighty king, the one who comes to establish the eternal king. And that's where the story is going. And it is through King Jesus, the blessings would flow out to the rest of the nations. Now verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. See, God is saying, hey, this covenant, Abram, is not just between me and you. This covenant is between me and you and your descendants after you. And we know from other parts of Scripture, these descendants include everyone who finally put their trust and faith in Jesus. That includes those of us who are believers who are gathered here this morning. And God is saying this is an everlasting covenant. Meaning, this is a covenant that will not be broken. 
because God is the one who said, I will keep this. And so this is a covenant that will go on and it will never be broken. Verse eight, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So God's reiterating again, all the land of Canaan will be an everlasting possession. This is even hinting at the resurrection. See, because Abram will die and he will never inherit the land. The only way he'll inherit this land of Canaan is if he's resurrected from the dead. And again, how is this going to be possible? Because God is El Shaddai. He is almighty. And lastly, and most importantly, in the verse 8, he says, I will be their God. In fact, in verse 7, In verse 7, he already said, to be God to you. So same idea. I will be God to you. I will be your God. I will be their God. Uh, Ultimately, this is at the very heart of the covenant relationship. The most important part of the covenant relationship. where God says, I will be your God. You know, one commentator said it like this, that it's like the wedding vow where the bridegroom says, I will. I give myself to you. I mean, there's such a personal note to this, isn't it? Where God is saying, I will be your God. See, the greatest gift, more than anything else in the world, is for God to give of himself to his people. And how wonderful, isn't it, when we think about who this God is, He's the great God, the good God, the God who cares, the God who's righteous, the God in whom there is no evil, the God who's gracious, the God who's kind, the God who loves perfectly, the God who's almighty. And it is this God who gives of himself to his people. And he gives himself to all who put their trust and hope in Jesus. You know, John Piper, in his book, uh, God is the Gospel, it's a wonderful book that, you know, essentially comes down to the fact that the good news ultimately is God himself, the gift of God himself. And And he talks about just various things, you know. He says, okay, Christian, I want you to think about it. Why is it important for you to be forgiven of your sins? Why is it important for you to be adopted into God's family? Why is it important for you to be justified? Why is it important for you to be sanctified? Why is it important for you to be glorified? 
Why all these different things? Why is this so important? What is the end goal? Because they're not an end in itself. Because the end goal is that you get God. He is the gospel. He is the good news. That He is your God and you are in right relationship with Him. In fact, he uses this analogy where he says, think of it like this. If you've had uh, a, a fight with your spouse, you've had an argument with her, and uh, you are now mulling over it and thinking about it, and now you've decided to go back to her and ask for forgiveness. But then he says, but why? Why do that? So that you can have a good meal the next day? So that you get to sleep with her at night? So that, uh, you know, it doesn't seem awkward for the kids around you? Why? Why? Why is it important that you be forgiven? He says it's because you want to be in right relationship with her. Because you want her. See, this forgiveness and everything else, they're simply obstacles. It takes away obstacles to finally be in this relationship. And so every blessing that God will give ultimately, they're just obstacles making you more and more qualified, just things that you get so that ultimately you get God himself. He is the highest price and reward for you. Oh, what a great God we have. A God who is so powerful, a God who's so loving, a God who's so gracious and kind and merciful, who gives of himself to his people. And friends, let me tell you, this almighty God, this God who gives of himself to his people, this God who fulfills his promises, many years after his promises to Abram, one day came down into this world in the form of a human being as Jesus Christ. And he came to his own, and his own rejected him. And then they crucified him. And yet, in God's sovereign plan, Jesus died on that cross for the sinful rebellion of his people. Where God's wrath, God's judgment was poured out on Jesus on that cross. And at that point, for the world to see, and for Satan and his minions, it would have seemed like the silliest thing or the weakest thing as they looked at the cross. Ha! King of the Jews! Look at him now, dead. And yet, the cross, which was a symbol of shame and weakness, became the symbol of the very power of the Almighty God. Because it is through the cross, he didn't remain dead. Jesus rose on the third day, conquering sin and death, proving that he is God, proving that he is able to forgive sins of all those who will put their trust in him. 
He is a God who gives of himself to his people. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just tell you this. You know, perhaps you, you, you are thinking, let me just tell you first and foremost, God is almighty and he is able to save you. Yes, you, he is able to save you. No matter what you're going through. Perhaps you, you have the burden of trying to live a good life and trying to live a religious life and trying to do all these good works and hoping that perhaps I'll be in right relationship with God. Maybe there's some of you who are overcome by the burden of living in your sin and you just see, oh, I've, I've committed some of the worst kind of sins and that's just weighing you down. Let me tell you, friend, God is the almighty God and he's able to save you. He has revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin today. Turn from yourself today and trust in Jesus and rely on him and follow hard after him. This is the only way that you can be saved. This is the only way you can be in right relationship with God. And if you say this morning, I believe, I believe in what Jesus has done. I believe in who he is. Then let me tell you, then continue to turn away from your sin and continue to follow hard after him. Because that is the evidence that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you're actually following him. It's not just a mentally saying, I believe. The evidence that you have a relationship with him is that you are living this way, following Jesus and turning away from your sin and your own self. To the believers, let me just say this. We have a great God who gives of himself to us. He's good, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind, and he is El Shaddai. He is with you now and he is with you till the end. He is your prize, he is your everything. And that means no matter what happens, no matter what circumstance you face on this earth, this almighty God is with you. This covenant bond will never be broken. Your foolishness, your sin, or anybody else or any other circumstance will not be able to break this bond because it is God who has established this covenant with you. And he will keep you to the end. So let's continue to be faithful to this God. Let's be, let's be thinking about our Lord Jesus and be thinking of how to represent him on this earth and to tell others about the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that though we are weak, you are almighty. And though we cannot save ourselves, we cannot change ourselves, we cannot be a blessing to others, you are able. You are the almighty God.
We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In and through him, we give you all the praise and the thanks. Amen.